your mind. Today, we're going to start with a conversation with Hemant Mahabatra, partner at Lightspeed Ventures India. Hemant, welcome to the show. Thank you, Shamana, and hello, everybody. So, Hemant, let's start by introducing our audience to the activities of Lightspeed India, the positioning, and, and a bit of your background. Yeah, very, very happy to. And then thanks for inviting me here, Samana. Uh, great, uh, great platform for everybody to sort of collaborate and learn from each other. Love the idea, love the concept. Heard a lot about uh, you and the platform as well before. So very, very happy to be here. Um, I'll give you a bit of my background first and talk a bit about Lightspeed as a firm and uh, India specifically as well. So uh, I grew up in India and I left for the U.S. in 2003. Spent about 15 years there across uh, Austin, Texas, my favorite city in the world, um, and uh, SF Bay Area, my second favorite city after Bombay. Um, I spent my career mostly as an engineer and product guy across hardware and software companies, uh, six years at AMD and then five years at Google, uh, joining Google X and then evolving uh, into a product, uh, from a product management role, evolving into a business development and, and uh, and uh, you know, um, strategy role at, at cloud. Spent about four and a half years there, and saw the cloud growth, like you know, really take off from 2013-14 to now. And as part of my journey, I did a bunch of work that uh, you know um, that that sort of allowed the the cloud product to sort of scale up. And a lot of that involved uh, you know investments as well as acquisitions. Uh, so I got really close to uh, startups during, during those days, and I really enjoyed my experience there. And as I began investing and in acquiring companies, I felt like this could be a career move for me. Uh, like, why not do it uh, as a full-time job? And at that time, I was losing a lot of my deals to Andreessen Horowitz. And then uh, they came calling in 2018 saying, hey, you've spent five years at Google. Why are you wasting your life away? Why don't you sort of join us? Uh, either an investment uh, in, in, a, in an investing role, or you could join a startup, or if you're doing a startup, you know, maybe that's another way to uh, collaborate. So I figured, you know, I was ready to move to India at the time, figured let's, uh, let's try the venture capital route. Uh, you know, where else would you do it? Uh, it's not the, it's not the, uh, the valley. So join them uh, as an enterprise investment partner there, spent about a year, and then Lightspeed uh, came by and then came calling and then, things just fell into place. Um, I've known the Lightspeed team a couple of years before as well. One of my investments at Google was a Lightspeed company. So I've had the relationship in the past and then things just fell into place. Moved back August of last year. And, uh, you know, here uh, I'm the sixth partner. I'll give you a bit of Lightspeed background as well. As you know, it's a, it's a U.S. vintage firm. It's been around for almost 20 plus years now. But it has mostly been popular with enterprise companies, although we have diversified into uh, crypto, blockchain, consumer, and a bunch of other marketplace type companies as well over the last five, 10 years. And uh, the India team used to be part of Lightspeed US, you know, 2006 onwards. But four years ago, India opportunity became big enough and interesting enough for us to raise an India-centric, or I would call it Southeast Asia-centric fund beginning with India. And we raised that fund in 2013, uh, it was a $135 million fund, and we invested in roughly 20 to 30 companies out of that. Many of them have become global brands now uh, in hospitality, in, in ed tech, and in a few other categories. 
And then we raised the second fund when I joined August last year. It's a $175 million fund, um, so a bit of a bump up from last, uh, from last fund. And we, we invest across uh, you know, all opportunities in consumer and enterprise. Uh, we love tech-focused companies that are solving for a very, very sort of, you know, solving for a very uh, fundamental uh, problem in a space that is, that is humongous and very underserved. Right, and in India, there are many opportunities like that in healthcare, in logistics, in agriculture, um, you know, in many other places. So we feel like, you know, that it's, it's the game is just beginning in India. Um, so that's Lightspeed India. There are six partners, there, including myself, and uh, and yeah, I mean, a couple of com- a couple of companies you may have heard of. Uh, Oyo is one of the global, one of the biggest global brands in, in hospitality today. Uh, you know, uh, grow, growing out of India into Japan, UK, US, uh, and China. Um, Baiju's, uh, if you haven't heard of Baiju's yet, you will hear about it soon because they're entering US pretty soon. Um, it's an India-based, Chennai-based uh, ed tech company um, and, uh, you know, uh, one of the largest ed tech players in the world today and many others. Uh, so, that's, uh, so that's my background. Uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions based on all the things that you said. So, $75 million fund, what stage are you, is your comfort zone in terms of investing? Oh, it's a, it's a $175, $175 million fund. $175 million. Uh, okay. Yeah, so we, so we come in early. Look, I mean, as we, we are an early stage VC, so we love our Cs, As, and Cs. Um, we, uh, so those are the two stages that we come most, most commonly at. Last year, most of our I think half of our uh, investments were series seed, so we came in very early. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and then so our check sizes range from one to three million dollars for a seed, all the way to ten million dollars for a very very compelling team that has a pre-product idea. So we we would directly do a large series A, which was Uran, a B2B commerce company that we invested in one and a half years ago, and now is publicly valued above a billion dollars. Uh, so yeah. And then we also have a growth fund that we pull out of uh, whenever required for larger rounds, um, you know, as and when needed. And that's a so, that's, um, I think that's a billion point. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's take a couple of the examples that you gave, Oyo and Baiju, maybe, and um, talk us through when did they come to you? When did you get involved? And what was the progression of your involvement in those companies? These are obviously companies that have raised a lot of money. So talk talk to that. How um, you know how does that evolution happen in in those kinds of companies? So I'll, I'll take two examples. One is Oyo, and then Uran is another one that I really like talking about. Uh, this was before my time, so most of it is you know not not my contribution to the to the firm and the fund. Uh, other people have done uh, all the hard work here. I want to point that out. So Oyo was a very interesting, you know, as actually a friend of mine, Maninder Gulaji, who was a principal at Lightspeed, I think four years ago. And uh, look, I mean, we are, most of us are, you know, either entrepreneurs, engineers, product guys in the past. So we sort of like this bottoms up thinking about markets and opportunities, right? So he was looking at the hospitality market and he had done some work on it and he really felt there were some pretty big gaps in the market that were not addressed today. And that market was essentially around, you know, like two or three star hotels 
that are super disaggregated in the country. There's no brand there. There's no discoverability platform for them. They can't really put them, themselves up on Airbnb or booking.com or hotels.com. Now people, people don't really, the kind of people who go there to book hotels don't really look for one to two star hotels. Right? So he thought that most of India, tier two, tier three, tier four cities, had a bunch of these mom and pop hotels that had no way to sort of you know, capture demand online. They had no way to be discovered. And this was this felt like a technology-based play that you know could be that, that could become a large company. So he was looking around in the market for a founder who was addressing this. And uh, you know, I think after searching around, he found this this one gentleman uh, named Ritesh, a 19-year-old kid, right? He had just gotten the Thiel Fellowship, and uh, he had gotten into I think one of the IITs. I think he was IIT Delhi, and uh, so one of the premier colleges in the country. Everybody would sort of kill to go there. He had gotten admissions. But then he also got admitted to Thiel Fellowship and he quit college. Obviously, that's one of the requirements to join the Thiel Fellowship and he joined Thiel Fellowship instead. And it came up in the news and, uh, you know, where he gave an interview and talked about, you know, what he is doing. And it turned out to be something very similar to what Maninda thought, you know, was mm-hmm. the gap in the market. So hustled his way into discussing, you know, what what uh, was up to, built up a relationship. We came in very early. I think they had they had just about 50 hotels at the time we came in, right? So basis mm-hmm. that experience, uh, we did all the work. Basis just this early sort of traction in the market, right? And now they have, I think, 300,000 odd hotels, you know, at, at this stage now. But when we put money in, I think we put $600,000 check into you know, that early, and then mm-hmm. worked with the founder, built up a relationship, you know, saw them through multiple fundraisers they've raised. Uh, don't quote me on this, but I think they've raised more than a billion dollars now, right? So from the likes of SoftBank and all that. So we've stayed together, um, you know, lockstep with the founder, you know, across not just capturing India opportunity, but also expanding into China, Japan, UK, uh, and now the US. So it's been a five-year journey. Bejul Sumaya, my partner, is on the board there. And he and the founder are so close that, uh, you know, whenever there's a birthday in a family, his Bejul's kids write a card. This is from us, mom, and Ritesh. They are that close, right? So, and we love that. We love sort of this kind of founder, you know, board relationship. I think a lot of learning happens on both sides. Our trust is built that way. So even though, you know, now the cap table is fairly crowded with very, very large and powerful players, we feel like we still have the founders here. We still, the founders see trust our opinions. Over, mm-hmm. over so many years, uh, where is not not for the lack of you know having alternate point of views, but the, the relationship is still strong. So we like that kind of a company building process. So our style. Mm-hmm. Um, the other quick example would oh. be Uran. You know, these are ex. Yeah. Before you go to Uran, actually, I have a question. Um, so, you know, there are these very large funds like SoftBank that are flushing the market with capital. They're doing it in India. They're doing it in Silicon Valley. They're doing it on, on a worldwide scale right now. Um, what does that do to the early investors like you with, you know, relatively, I mean, 175 million is not a small fund by any stretch of imagination, but in contrast to a SoftBank fund, it's a very small fund. And, um, and, and they're basically flushing the cap tables. So how does, what is your point of view about these kinds of scenarios and, and how do you play? Do you exit into SoftBank? Do you keep going? What's the thinking? 
Yeah, so I mean, look, I've not been in a situation where one of my companies is being funded by SoftBank, so maybe you should ask me this question in the future again. Uh, not having been there and, you know, faced the SoftBank juggernaut, um, uh, what I would say is, well, I mean, a lot of this is, you know, based on the founder, right? I mean, I think having a relationship with the founder, a relationship of trust um, is, uh, you know, is there. You can, you know, you, you kind of differentiate yourself from the cap table. The cap table is what the cap table is. The mathematics you can't really deny. If you don't have the capital to fund a billion dollar round, you don't have the capital. But but it doesn't necessarily have to mean that you lose power um, and say in the company. And those things uh, are driven not just by capital. It is driven by experience. It's driven by relationship that you have with the founder. It's driven by trust, the value you've added from the very early days. Um, and those things don't just go away that easily. And that's what we are seeing in OYO. That's what we expect to see in other companies that we have funded. But if you have a lot of liquidation preferences that are, you know, preferences over your your preferences, then, you know, that, that's something that has to be handled by the, uh, you know, the smaller fund. Yeah, and this so is, I'm so, asking so, you that in your context, it's happening everywhere. I think this is a problem that, and I've had lots of private conversations where people don't want to go on the record that are facing this problem. All the micro VCs are facing this problem. Yeah, so we don't think of ourselves as micro VC. We have a billion plus fund that we can pull money out of if you want to sort of retain ownership levels. So we, not really, we don't really think from that lens at all. Uh, look, liquidation preferences are what they are, right? Uh, it, it, it kicks in when there's a liquidity event happening, right? Um, now, as any venture, venture capitalist will tell you, you know, it's a risk and reward ratio. You know, if you think the risks are too high for you to create liquidity for your LPs, you pull something out of the market. You pull, you know, you pull a ratio of what you put in from the cap table and turn your money back to ELPs. And we, we continue to look at all investments that have scaled to a degree. Um, the, the liquidity created by that scale is interesting to us as a fund. And we look at those opportunities on a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. So it, it sounds like you, when, you, when a situation like that arises, your, your uh, global funds or a Silicon Valley fund is, is bringing in the capital to match the round and so forth. Anyway, we don't need to belabor the point. You were going to talk about Uran. Go ahead. Oh, Uran. Uran is a, like one of my favorite stories here. It's such a, they're solving such an India-centric problem, right? I mean, commerce in India has always been so offline, so one-on-one relationship, and, you know, they'll call somebody up and somebody will say, well, I'll give you this at this rate, I'll negotiate, I'll deliver here, you come there to pick it up. It's almost like a it's almost like a secret, uh, you know, like a secret science that if you know, you know. If you don't, you just don't. And Uran uh, was funded by two folks, three folks actually, very early employees uh, at Flipkart, one of, one of the largest e-commerce companies in India, uh, recently bought by uh, Walmart uh, for a fairly large <coughs> valuation. And one of the founders was Amod Malviya. He was a CTO of Flipkart, and there were a few other folks, uh, Sudeep and Vabhav uh, Viji that built the ops uh, and supply chain network for Flipkart. And, uh, you know, so they were very familiar with how this business is operated, right? So they kind of got out of Flipkart uh, a few years ago, a couple of years back, and they said, we want to solve this whole, we are, e-commerce is solved. It's, you know, it's being solved by Amazon and Flipkart. But what about the commerce that happens between businesses, right? It's not just business to consumer. What about business to business? who's taking care of their supply chain, who's doing logistics for them, who's doing discoverability for them, who's doing pricing for them, 
um, and there's nobody doing that in a systematic, uh, you know, tech-driven way. So they built a company called Ron to do that, and they have just scaled up tremendously. Uh, I think their overall GMVs are in the billions, uh, and that all happened mm-hmm. in the last one and a half years. I'm, I'm quoting numbers from public uh, records here. Uh, this is uh, proprietary information. So, and the reason they were able to do that was because, you know, A, they had the foundations really right. They knew what the pain points were and how strongly they were felt. And uh, when they met us, they didn't have a product. They didn't have, you know, um, you know, any sort of signs of execution that works. They had a concept and they had a team. And we put in a very, very large check, $10 million odd, into the company at a very, very early stage, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, we took a bet. Yeah, so it was a very large round for us. It was, I think it is, given a fund our size, I, I can imagine it was pretty out, pretty out there from a, from a comfort zone perspective, right? It wouldn't be easy to expose so much capital into a company that has you know, nothing more than a very, very clean idea and a very, very strong team. And, but we did think bottoms up about that opportunity. We did really do our work. Uh, we understood that there is certainly a need and we said, well, this need can only be solved uh, you know, by these guys and why not go hard and hungry in this deal versus, you know, doing piecemeal. And we did that and it worked, it worked really well. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, um, what is your current analysis of the big problems in India? So in the same vein that uh, your colleagues went and sought out the oil uh, team, our founder, what are some problems out there that you are looking for solutions to or teams that are solving these problems? Yeah, I'll give you three teams, and there are so many, right? We spend an entire hour just talking about that. Uh, three things that personally I find really exciting, besides the obvious for me, which is enterprise, and you know, it's going to continue going on. One, um, in fintech, I think India is way more advanced than most of the countries. Maybe, maybe, maybe China is the only other parallel that comes to mind. And this all happened in the last couple of years, right? The fintech regulation, the fintech adoption um, is just stupendous. And now that the basic problems of payments have been taken care of to a large degree uh, by both policy as well as product, um, the next challenge is around what other financial products would be useful. So lending seems to be another thing where, you know, people need, on a buyer side, they need EMI, for example, and the seller side, they need working capital. So a lot of the platforms are evolving into um, how do you create more liquidity on both sides of the marketplaces to facilitate exchange of, you know, goods and values. So that, 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 that piece is big. Now, with lending comes other challenges around collections and risk and all of that, and there are companies that we built to either solve it horizontally, eventually probably vertically, then if the businesses are large enough, right? So that's that's one category I'm looking at. Second is around logistics. You now, India has, doesn't have the best road network. It's not like U.S. or China. Uh, railway network is, is pretty advanced, but, you know, a lot of it is very manual, uh, very inefficient, uh, supply chains are not really, and a lot of lot of work happens when you shift from one state to another, and so on and so forth. Right. So the policy is coming in to make the transfer of goods uh, easier from from let's say a taxation perspective, but the actual you know nuts and bolts of logistics are very inefficient. An example would be when you 
there's no electronic way to sort of confirm re- receipt of a, of a of a package, like you know that mm-hmm. comes in a truck. So you know, you know, the company is coming up, figuring out what is an electronic bill. How do you make that uh, foolproof and fraudproof, right? So that, that's an opportunity. So uh, logistics as a whole is a big area, which is super inefficient but very large addressable market in India. And third is agriculture. Like 70% of GDP in India is agriculture, but it's still done. You know, you still have very very old technologies used. Essentially, you use animals to till the land, not even tractors. The tractor penetration in India is 4% of the overall, uh, you know, really? land that is available. Yeah. Okay. Right. So you would think it would be you can't yeah you can't do anything without tractors, but people do it by hand. People do it with cows and and bulls in order to till land like that. Um, irrigation, you know, drip irrigation doesn't really exist much beyond a certain category of farming. Um, so we're thinking about, you know, like even like supply chain for farming is super inefficient. You know, you have three or four players before the produce gets to the market, you know, the end mm-hmm. consumer, right? So we have, we have, we have village level, you know, aggregators, then you have regional aggregators, zonal aggregators, state aggregators, then national, and then supply goes back to tier one cities, tier two cities, and then export and import. Like all of this is completely opaque. Who gets what prices? Who does negotiations? Who does supply chain? Where is my good? What are, what are the risks? How do I price it on a daily basis, weekly basis? Nobody has any clue. So the companies who will solve that will probably become really, really integrated into the overall supply chain for agriculture as a whole and become really valuable companies. So yeah, yeah fintech, logistics, agriculture. The amount of wastage in the agriculture supply chain is unbelievable. Yeah, and, and I actually realized that a lot of the waste is not actually in transportation. It's actually at the standing crop level because of bad irrigation techniques, because of mis, uh, misunderstanding demands so or overproducing or underproducing or fertilizers are put in wrong at the wrong time, uh, overpesticiding. Things like that is where a lot of the crop gets lost. It is not in the transportation network, which is surprising to mm-hmm. me. So, anyway. So, um, coming back to the more mundane uh, topic of enterprise, um, you know, technology, which is, you know, what everybody wants to invest in by and large in the venture world. What is your analysis of what kinds of stuff do you see as interesting and exciting? So what's, so coming into India, I didn't know really how deep the enterprise you know, startup landscape would be, and it is never going to be as deep as the U.S. You know, at least for a few years now. But what is interesting is the ambition of the best founders in enterprise here is no less uh, than the ambitions of the best founders in enterprise in the U.S. If you think about it, a lot of the big enterprise companies in the U.S. You know, like AppDynamics, uh, Zscaler, Rubrik, Nutanix. Who are these guys? Indian guys born and brought up in India, studied in India, went to the U.S. It expanded their mind, and then they executed behind that, right? They got the experience that really expanded their mind and never went back to its original size. That is now happening to Indian founders sitting in India. Yeah. Yeah, companies like Fresh, Fresh Desk that have scaled up to $100 million ARR uh, took a long time, but there are a lot of scale. Sorry? Fresh Desk was in, incubated in 1 million by 1 million in 2011. Wow. Awesome. 
Wow, so great, like so stuff like that. I mean, this is how. I think like, it was a path-breaking company actually. Zoho was a path-breaking company, and then Freshdesk was a path-breaking company. Yeah, so Freshdesk is, you know, is a great example, but there are other newer companies as well that have scaled up really well, really quickly. Browser Stack is an example of a developer-centric company that that offers. Uh, developers a way to check their apps, mobile and web apps, on different kinds of browsers, right? On um, mm -hmm. Chrome's version X or Firefox version Y, and then Opera and blah blah blah. And they have scaled to over two million developers in the last three to four years, which is a very interesting scale. This is a scale that GitHub was at, and and recent Horowitz put a hundred million dollar check into it, right? So that's a fantastic scale. Uh, companies like Postman, they have reached six to seven million developers in the last three four years. These are fantastic scales. All Indian mm -hmm. companies, Indian founders born and brought up in India, right? So something interesting is happening to India enterprise where the founders' vision and ambition have actually crossed borders like never before. And it's not just India to US, it's also India to Southeast Asia because there's no other enterprise company, um, there's no enterprise place for Southeast Asia. China is very consumer focused. The big enterprise companies in China are all hardware companies. And the rest of Southeast Asia looks up to India in terms of you know, quality of talent, in terms of you know, technical expertise. So it's a very natural fit for us. Yeah, all right. Very good. Um, anything else that you want to add before we uh, move to the entrepreneur pitches? <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, uh, yeah, look, I mean, look, I, I think I've been an entrepreneur before. I, I, I have to leave for my, for my next session, so apologies for not being able to attend the actual uh, pitches. But having tried to do the entrepreneurship journey, um, having tried to raise capital, I think I really empathize by how difficult the journey is. I feel the best kinds of entrepreneurs, um, you know, are, are just are just so resourceful, you know, like uh, they're almost like the word, but they're like cockroaches. They just refuse to die. They will wait around, <laughs> they will survive any, any nuclear disaster. They'll survive the freak out of that and the market will come to them. This is what happened with Bezos. You know, he was not any less of a founder 15 years ago, 10 years ago, but he IPO'd in 1998. His stock was like slack for like till 2007. And 2007, iPhones came up and everybody had a device to buy things from and then and Amazon just took off. You can see it online, it's public. Uh, the, the members are public, right? And why did that happen? You know, like because the founder survived any and everything. He just kept doing his thing, just kept building the fundamentals of his business and the market came to him. Airbnb, you know, the market was never ready for people to open up their houses. 2007, 8, 9, they tried to raise money from YC, YC funded, but you know, Fred Wilson said no, a bunch of other founders said no, a bunch of other VCs said no. They kept selling Cheerios for Obama campaigns, right? They kept locking doors in New York to say, well, you are, you are, you are, you are a blue state, right? Would you not support an Obama campaign or coming to your city to sort of campaign for Obama and open your doors, right? You trust them. They did stuff like yeah. that. And then 2008, crisis happened. People lost their jobs. In 2009, people didn't have enough money to sort of pay for their rent. Then they were open to opening up their doors to get a stranger to come in and sleep in their bedrooms. And the market came to them again. Why? Airbnb just survived everything else. What else there to do? So I feel like, you know, just stick it out, you know, stay resilient, stay resourceful, find a way, just find a way. And be creative in finding the market as they come to you. Very exactly. good, wonderful, very nice catching up with you, and uh, we'll see you soon. Yeah, great to meet you, and good luck for everybody who's pitching. Bye.